we come to the pinnacle of a worship service where we have an opportunity to humble ourselves before the preaching of God's Word. And I invite you this morning to take your Bibles and turn to 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2. We have been making our way through verse by verse. 1 Peter, and now we're in 2 Peter. And in a few minutes, we will look at verses 3 through 10. Before we do, may I reflect with you for a moment on the glory of God, because this morning we're going to see His glory and His omniscience manifested in the context of divine judgment that He promises upon the wicked, especially false teachers. In fact, the title of my discourse this morning is Certain Doom for False Teachers. Recently, I was contemplating on the glory of our God in His creation, as well as His supernatural ability to keep track of all things. In one book that I was reading, a scientist says that when you think of the number of atoms that are in a single grain of salt, they are literally beyond our ability to count. If we had a supercomputer that could do 10 billion numbers per second, that could count 10 billion numbers per second, it would occupy that computer 50 years in order to count the number of atoms in a single grain of salt. He said that if you were to enlarge every atom found in that grain of salt to the size of a pinhead, its volume would be equivalent to 400,000 times the great period pyramid of Cheops in Egypt. God's creation is astounding when we look at his microcosm, but when you contrast that with the macrocosmos, it causes your mind to begin to short circuit. There are an estimated 200 billion stars in our galaxy alone. And there are at least 100 million galaxies, according to current information. Every corner of the universe reveals the glory of God, who spoke it all into existence. And what's even more amazing is they tell us that the solar system reveals a marvelous design not a random explosion. And when my mind and my imagination is taken to its limits, contemplating God as creator, it becomes utterly exhausted when I reflect upon his omniscience, his ability to know all things, his infinite ability to know all things past, present, and future, his ability to instantly and perfectly be acquainted with every aspect of the galaxies, every star, every creature, every thought that we have, every motive, every molecule, every atom within us. In fact, Scripture tells us that every star has a name. In Psalm 147.4, we read that He determines the number of the stars and calls them each by name. And later on in verse 5, the psalmist says, Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has no limit. 
And Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 40 and verse 26, lift your eyes up and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls them each by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. And Job tells us in Job 11, beginning in verse 7, can you fathom the mysteries of God? He asks, can you probe the limits of the Almighty? He goes on to say, they are higher than the heavens. What can you do? I know that feeling. What can you do? You think about it and you just all of a sudden get lost in your own finiteness. He goes on to say, they are deeper than the depths of the grave. What can you know? And indeed, because of the incomprehensible vastness of his creation and his infinite ability to know all things, we can echo the words of the psalmist in Psalm 92 and verse 5, where we read, How great are your works, O Lord! How profound your thoughts! But friends, may I also remind you that this same Creator is intimately aware and intimately acquainted with all of our ways. Each and every one of us. We're told that in Psalm 139.3. In fact, in verse 4, the psalmist tells us, Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, thou dost know it all. You see, the same Creator who holds all things together, as Scripture tells us, by the word of His power, is intimately aware of every minute aspect of our life. Everything we think, everything that we do. It's utterly incomprehensible. And in light of this, the psalmist says in Psalm 8, beginning in verse 3, When I can consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man? That you care for him. And in Matthew 10, Jesus told us about himself, the God who providentially orchestrates and perfectly knows all things, even including something as insignificant as a sparrow that falls to the ground. He says in verse 30, but even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Dear friends, with such infinite wisdom, he therefore knows our hearts. He knows what we have done, both good and bad. He knows what we have done for his glory or our glory. He knows all that we have done in the flesh, all that we have done in the spirit as Christians. He keeps perfect records. Nothing is forgotten. However, for those of us who know and love Christ, he chooses not to remember many things because of his saving and forgiving grace. But God has told us that he has a record of all that we have ever done. He has kept a perfect accounting of every thought, of every word, of every deed. And this, of course, should be a great motivator for us as Christians to live our lives in such a way as to honor God, because someday we will have to give an account of our lives. And God will reward us only for what we did for his glory. 
The Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And the context here is talking to believers, not the unsaved. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. He goes on to say that that time will be when the Lord comes who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. But friends, this record of divine omniscience will also reveal the evidence that God will use to judge unbelievers. Those who refuse to worship him. We read, for example, in Revelation 19. And the context here is when unbelievers will stand before God at the great white throne judgment at the end of Christ's millennial reign. And beginning in verse 12, we read this. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. He went on to say in verse 15, if any man's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The Spirit of God speaks the same truths through his prophet Daniel. In Daniel chapter 7 beginning in 9, where Daniel describes this terrifying scene of judgment. And there we read, I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat and the books were opened. And sadly, some of you will be there on that day. Paralyzed with a fear that exceeds the limits of the imagination. You will stand there, those of you who thought you were saved but were not, in utter horror. You will stand there, having been convinced by your own self-deception, by your own hypocrisy, and perhaps by the lies of false teachers. And you will think in your mind and in your heart that surely this must be some colossal mistake. Some will stand there who have gone to church all of their life among the myriads and myriads And you will say to yourself, but I profess Christ. And when it is your turn, you will say, but I professed you, Lord. And his answer will be, yes, you did. But your faith was superficial. It was not real. It was phony. It was a false humility. Yours was a cultural Christianity. There was no obedience, no self-denial. There was no real love for me. And I have the book here of a perfect record to prove it. Some will say, well, but but, but I attended Calvary Bible Church. (laughs) Yes, but your religion was a veneer. You never really repented of your sins. 
You never loved me with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your strength. You never had a hungering and thirsting for righteousness. You never had a longing for my word. You never had a desire to live for my glory. You just kind of played church. Life was all about you. Yours was churchianity, not Christianity. And here is a perfect record of your life. And millions will stand alongside the false teachers that they followed. And Jesus tells us a sample of what many so-called Christians and especially false teachers will say on that day. In Matthew 7, beginning in verse 22, Jesus says, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who have practiced lawlessness. This day will be a day of wrath for all who have rejected Christ as Savior and refused to worship Him as their sovereign Lord. The Apostle Paul describes this in Romans chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. He says, because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds. He went on to say that those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, they will receive wrath and indignation. You see, friends, because God knows everything and everyone perfectly, He has promised to judge even the secrets of men's hearts. Romans 2, verse 16. Those secret thoughts and motives, those delicious sins that we savor in the secret recesses of our imaginations, none of them escape the omniscient and penetrating eye of God. Jesus said in Luke 12, beginning in verse 2, Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed upon the housetops. Jesus also said in Matthew 12:36, On the day of judgment, men will render account for every careless word they utter. We even read in the Old Testament in Ecclesiastes 12:14, For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Now, friends, I confess to you that I take no joy in such solemn warnings. Frankly, the realities of divine judgment in hell are beyond my ability to fathom, mainly because in my humanness I cannot fathom the level of hatred that God has for sin. It exceeds the limits of my imagination beyond my ability to even comprehend the galaxies in space. But to whatever degree I do understand and hate sin, and believe me, I loathe its consequences in my life and in this world, I can say with utmost conviction that my sin deserves God's wrath, but it has been because of His mercy and His grace that I have been forgiven. And all of you who have placed your faith and trust in Christ, all who have truly repented and believed 
a conversion that has been validated by a life of humble obedience to Christ Jesus as Savior and Lord. Now, with this background of God's infinite power and His omniscient record-keeping ability and the promise of judgment upon the wicked, we come to this sobering text before us this morning. Because here we see God's utter contempt for all of those false teachers who trifle with the truth. And in past weeks, we've gone over some of them even by name. Servants of the devil. Servants of Apollyon, the destroyer. Servants of the father of lies. The one who appears as an angel of light. That diabolical enemy of God who produces men and even women who pretend to be pastors but are wolves in sheep's clothing. That enemy of God who has blinded the minds of the unbelievers so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. 2 Corinthians 4.4 These are false teachers who have slipped into the church. And friends, may I remind you That false teachers are to the church what cancer is to the body. Their metastasizing corruption eventually destroys all who become seduced by their lies. And because God is glorified by the truth that he has revealed about himself, he has an exceedingly hot hatred for anyone who distorts the truth, who manipulates the truth who misrepresents the truth or who denies the truth. And ultimately, he will punish them for their wickedness. With this background, now we come to 2 Peter chapter 2 and we pick it up in the middle of verse 3. And here the Spirit of God speaks to us through his apostles and says, their judgment, referring to the false teachers, from long ago is not idle And their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes having made them an example to those who would live ungodly thereafter, and if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard, that righteous man while living among them felt his righteous soul tormented day after day with their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. In an effort to understand this text and God's judgment upon false teachers, I have divided this section of Scripture into three very simple categories. We will see the pronouncement, the paradigm, and the proficiency of divine judgment. The pronouncement, the paradigm, and the proficiency of divine judgment. Now, again, may I remind you of the context here. Peter is facing death. He will soon be crucified along with his wife and others that he knows and loves. And it is his passion to remind his readers of the glory 
and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has just defended the inspiration of the scriptures, truth that has been given to us from God himself. And he has warned about and even exposed those who would distort the truth. And last week we learned that these false teachers will have methods that will be secret. Their message will be sacrilegious. Their masquerade will be seductive. Their morals will be scandalous and their motives will be selfish. And now the Holy Spirit speaks through his apostle concerning the inevitable judgment that awaits apostate Christians who have crept into the church unnoticed and have, as he has said, secretly introduced destructive heresies in order to exploit you with false words. Those who deliberately cheat people out of their money, seduce them into immorality and control them by their demands to be obeyed without question, betraying an arrogance and an insatiable appetite for power. So first we look at the text and we see the pronouncement of divine judgment in verse 3. He says their judgment from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. In other words, the verdict, the condemnation that God will pronounce upon these purveyors of deception is from long ago. The idea here is that it has been foreknown. It has even been foreordained in the sovereign counsels of his will and even perfectly orchestrated in the immutable operations of his providential plan. You see, the deceptions of false teachers are no surprise to God. It's important for you to understand that God does not coerce false teachers to sin, nor is God ever responsible for sin. Yet their apostasy is ultimately a part of his sovereign plan. And we see that in many other texts as well. Frankly, there is no need to coerce a sinner to sin because sinners will do that naturally. And since they already love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil, God merely gives them over to a worthless mind, to the darkness that they love, and he prevents them from seeing any more light of the truth. In fact, we read in John 12, verse 40, paraphrasing Isaiah 29, verse 10, the Apostle John speaks to this very issue, and he says that God has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. Now, with this in mind, it becomes obvious that God has decreed condemnation for sinners, especially false teachers in eternity past. Therefore, Peter says their judgment from long ago is not idle. In other words, it is not without current consideration. It is not without current effect. God is keeping a record of wrongs. And they are, as I reminded you earlier from Romans 2 and verse 5, storing up wrath for themselves in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to every man according to his deeds. If we look into the Old Testament, we read of God's watch of vengeance upon false prophets and the inevitable doom that awaits them. For example, in Zephaniah 3, after we read of a scathing denunciation of the princes and judges and false prophets and priests who led the Israelites into, de into deception and idolatry, we read in verse 8, Therefore, wait for me, God says. Wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up as a witness. Indeed, my decision is to gather nations 
to assemble kingdoms, to pour out on them my indignation, all my burning anger, for all the earth will be devoured by the fire of my zeal. And likewise, Jesus speaks in the New Testament of a coming day of judgment in many passages, especially in Matthew 7, where he describes what will happen to those wolves and sheep's clothing. So Peter reminds us here of God's pronouncement of condemnation upon false teachers. He says, it is not idle. In other words, it is neither inoperative nor is it passive. In fact, Jude in verse 4 describes these apostates as those who were long beforehand marked out for his condemnation. You see, friends, God has in eternity past marked out a day, a day of vengeance that neither man nor demon can thwart a day when he will judge the wicked. And so Peter goes on to describe this eventual judgment. He actually personifies it at the end of verse three, saying their destruction is not asleep. In other words, don't be fooled. God is not napping. God is not ignoring all the chaos that's going on. All of the apostates that even have risen up within evangelical churches the one who will both condemn and punish them, all who will twist the truth, that one is perfectly aware of what they are up to. And what a staggering thought to know that God is keeping a record of wrongs. I often tremble in anger, even in fear, when I I watch some of these false teachers, especially those on television, or when I read their deceptions and hear their vulgarity, which, by the way, is one of the hallmarks Uh, Cursing is one of the hallmarks of the new emergent church phenomenon, the postmodern church that is gaining such incredible momentum. There are so many examples. Let me give you one or two. There is a homosexual activist group that claims to be Christian. It's called Soul Force, and it's founded by an evangelical Christian, at least he claims to be a man named Mel White, who was a former speechwriter to Pat Robertson. And he, along with other prominent Christians, are touring Christian colleges to try to engage students in a dialogue regarding homosexuality. And he says, and I quote, we are Christians and we're gay, end quote. And they say that those two things are not mutually exclusive, which is a blatant lie, a contradiction to what Scripture tells us. There is, an, there is another false teacher by the name of Brian McLaren. You've heard me speak of him before. He's kind of the guru of the emergent church movement. And he says, I'm not sure what we should think about homosexuality. So we need to have a five-year moratorium on making any value judgments. And he goes on to say, in five years, if we have clarity, we'll speak. And if not, we'll set another five years for ongoing reflection. Now, if I can digress for just a moment. I've worked with many, many homosexual men over the years in my counseling ministry and many lesbian women. And I love them. and I've seen some of them come to Christ. And ours is a message of hope and of grace and forgiveness from that tragic bondage. They are anything but gay, believe me. But what's hard to understand about what the Bible teaches on this Leviticus 18.22, God says, You shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. 
That's easy for me to understand. Leviticus 20 and verse 13. If there is a man who lies with a male as those who lie with a woman, both of them have committed a detestable act. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood guiltiness is upon them. How wonderful it is that we live in a time of grace rather than under the law. But God's moral judgment upon the wicked has not changed. In 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9 we're told, do not be deceived. And it goes on to say that homosexuals will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's very simple to understand. Now, of course, political correctness would say that what I've just said is hate speech. But friends, let me just say that truth is hate to those who hate the truth. And may I also say that the implications of this moral freefall in our country, especially with respect to homosexuality, is, is gaining incredible momentum. I've seen this here recently, and some of you have even called me and emailed me about this. There is a new bill, H.R. 1592, that has been fast-tracked as a congressional plan to add special protection for homosexuals to federal law, turning thoughts, feelings, and beliefs frankly, into criminal offenses. And Christians are the obvious targets of this bill. And currently it's endorsed by the majority of Democrats on the committee and already has 137 sponsors in the full house. By the way, don't worry. They will not silence me, nor will they silence other ministers of the gospel. We do not obey them, we obey God. And if God chooses to send me to prison, then mine will become a prison ministry. But you must expect this from the unregenerate outside the church because they have no capacity to understand the truth. They have not been transformed. The Spirit of God does not live within them. But when wicked people that call themselves Christians who are in fact unregenerate rise up within the church and claim to be speaking for God, claim to be honoring Him, when they say things like this, my, what an offense it is to a holy God. Indeed, theirs will be a stricter judgment. They are heaping up upon themselves ever-increasing punishments with every blasphemous word. But as we come back to the text, beyond the pronouncement of divine judgment upon false teachers, secondly, we see the paradigm of divine judgment. And basically, what we will see here is God reveals His glory. He reveals righteousness. He warns people that unless... They worship him and for sinners, unless they repent that he's going to judge them, but people refuse and they end up being judged. And in verses four through eight, he refers to three historic examples that serve as models of God's severe judgment that's poured out upon all who disregard and distort the truth of his word. We see this in a series, frankly, of if thens. And the first example is one of defiant demons. Look at verse 4. He says, for if, which also could be translated since, for since God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. Then later on at the beginning of verse 10, you say, you see, then the Lord knows. And later on, he goes how to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of wicked and in verse 10, especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. So we're going to see this if-then going on. 
But think, first of all, of this example of what I would call defiant demons. These were angels that once served the Most High God. They saw His glory. They saw His holiness and His righteousness. They hovered around His throne. And now they are chained in darkness. Tragic, when I think about it. Often the most vile apostates were those who were most trained in godliness. Think about it. Lucifer was the son of the morning who later became the father of lies. So Peter says, for since God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, then he's basically going to go on to say that he will do this as well to false teachers. And here this illustration is one that refers to his judgment upon the demons that defied his boundaries, the boundaries that God had imposed upon them. And you will recall in Genesis 6, this is when all of this occurred, those demons entered into mortal men and they cohabited with women just prior to the flood. In fact, Jude adds further commentary on these demons. He describes them in verses 6 through 7 as angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode. He is kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. And then he goes on, Jude goes on to liken their sin to the perversion of homosexuality. He says, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. So Peter's point is simply this. Since God did not spare these defiant demons, he will not spare defiant false teachers. Indeed, he will, as we read at the end of verse verse four, cast them into hell and commit them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. Hell is tautorosos in Greek. It's a Greek verb that is derived from the word Tartarus, which was a term that the readers would have known very well. They were well acquainted with Greek mythology. Tartarus was a reference to a subterranean abyss that was considered to be even lower than hell. It was the abode of the worst of the worst, of demons and of vile and wretched human beings. And what I want you to understand here, dear friends, is that God is serious about His spiritual authority. His Word that He has given to us. And His wrath will be unleashed upon anybody who trifles with the truth, whether a demon or whether a human being. Peter gives us a second example illustrating this paradigm of God's judgment. And it's an example of defiant humans in the ancient world. Notice in verse 5. For if God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, and then... Later on, we will understand that likewise he will do the same to false teachers. And here false teachers and their ultimate doom are likened to those exceedingly wicked people whom God judged in the worldwide flood. We read about that in Genesis 6 and 7. In Genesis 6, beginning in verse 5, we read that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Let me pause for a second. This is a perfect description of the world today. 
In fact, as you think about it, evil is the primary theme of entertainment today. You just turn on your radio and listen to the lyrics of the songs. Turn on your television. Go to your theaters. Pornography. Comedians don't get a laugh unless they say something that is vulgar. Talk shows and even religious programming where false teachers have an opportunity to deceive millions at a time. In Genesis 6, God goes on to describe the wickedness of the people in that day that parallel those of today. And he says, the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. And later in verse 11, Genesis 6, he says, now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. You might be interested to know that the Holy Spirit inspired both Enoch and Noah to speak the truth. By the way, they were the only two men in Scripture that were said to walk with God. These prophets of God preached a message of repentance. They warned of a coming day of judgment. They warned about the need for righteousness. And the people they spoke to refused. We read, for example, in Jude 14 where we actually have a sample of one of Enoch's messages, who, by the way, lived seven generations after the first man, after Adam. And in Enoch's message, we are warned that the ancient world, or that he warned the ancient world not to listen to false teachers of their day, and that a day of judgment was coming. And in Jude 14, here's what he says. It was also about these men that Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied. Well, about what man? Well, he's talking the context in Jude is that of false teachers. That's whom Jude is denouncing. So he says it was also about these men that Enoch prophesied, saying, behold, here's what Enoch told them in the days even before Noah. Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all. By the way, that's a reference to the angelic executioners that will accompany, accompany the Lord and us at his second coming. So he speaks of the Lord coming with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all. And then he goes on to say, and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Ungodly, 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 ungodly. Four times there in that one text. By the way, ungodly in the original language and even in our language means someone who is impious, someone who is blasphemous, immoral, who has no reverence, who has no fear of God. This is a scathing description, therefore, of false teachers and everyone who refuses to repent. And so back in those days, you remember the story, the waters of judgment rose. They came, they covered the entire world, as the geological record clearly confirms. And God drowned all of the ungodly, saving only Noah and his family, which is a marvelous picture of salvation. How God preserves those who truly obey him and love him and worship him from his righteous judgment. 
So, Peter uses an example. That time when God destroyed the world, judged the world because of their wickedness with water. Interestingly enough, he'll not use water the next time. He will use fire. But we have a third example. Not only does Peter use an example of defiant demons and defiant human beings of the ancient world, but also an example of defiant sexual perverts, both heterosexual and homosexual. In verse 6, he says, And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly thereafter, then he will also do the same to false teachers. You will recall the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, which, by the way, are now covered in at the southeast corner of the Dead Sea. These were notorious for their sexual perversions. And it's interesting that Sodom and Gomorrah rose up only a hundred years after the flood. You would have thought that they would have had more sense than that. But you can see the depths of human depravity. The wickedness of Sodom became proverbial all through the Old Testament. We see the term used. And even today, a sodomite is a term used to describe a homosexual. And you will recall the story to which Peter reminds us. In Jude 18, I mean in Genesis 18, the Lord and two angels took human form and they came and visited Abraham. You remember the story? They visited Abraham. They promised Abraham and Sarah a son. And then later on, he told Abraham that the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great and their sin is exceedingly grave in verse 20 of Genesis 18. And you will again remember how Abraham pleaded with the Lord. He knew that his nephew Lot lived in Sodom and he interceded on his behalf. And finally, God agreed that he would not destroy Sodom if he could find even as little as 10 righteous people in the city which obviously he could not do. And then in Genesis 19, the Lord stays with Abraham and the two angels in human form depart for Sodom. And Lot meets them there. Lot was at the gate and he took them into his house, which would be the culture of the ancient Near East for hospitality, but also to protect them from the wickedness of the homosexuals in that city. And in verse 5 of Genesis 19 we read what happened. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, both young and old, all the people from every quarter. So, folks, this wasn't just a handful. The whole city comes out. And they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may have relations with them. And you may recall that unbelievably... Lot, betraying his vexation of spirit because of living in such a wicked place and the inevitable influences of wicked people upon those who belong to God, in his fear, in his stupidity, in his foolishness, he offers his virgin daughters to these people rather than the men. And, of course, you will recall the story because the homosexuals had been abandoned to the consequences of their sin because they were slaves to their passions, their lusts. They did not want the women. They did not want the virgin daughters. They wanted the men. So this huge mob of sex-craved 
perverts resenting Lot's morality as twisted as it had become threatened to, as the scripture says, treat Lot worse than what they purposed to do to the two strangers he was protecting, betraying the burning of their lusts. And the story goes on. You will recall they tried to break through the door. The angels reached out and pulled Lot to safety. And in verse 11, we read that they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness. In other words, the angels blinded all of those who were trying to break through the door. They struck them with blindness, both small and great, so that they wearied themselves trying to find the doorway. Now, can you imagine that scene? Homosexuals blinded in a supernatural way, and yet they continue to exhaust themselves to somehow get to the objects of their lusts. Again, and I say this kindly, but truthfully and forthrightly, having worked with so many homosexuals, they are utterly blinded by lust. They are slaves to their sin. And they are notorious for the numbers of sexual encounters that they have. They are irascible men and women, easily angered. They are militant. Many of them, as you know, have become violent in their demand for sexual gratification. Of course, they want all of us to agree with them. And friends, they need our love, our Christian love. And they need us to present to them boldly the truth of the gospel. Because the truth of the gospel is the only thing that can free them from the bondage of their wickedness and the cravings of their lust, which, by the way, is only symptomatic of many more sinful proclivities that they have in their heart. We read of this burning and the abandonment that God gives to these kinds of people in Romans 1, beginning in verse 26, that God abandons them and gives them over to degrading passions. For their women exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also, the men abandon the natural function of the women. And then the text says, and, and burned in their desire toward one another. Burned in the original language is a term used to set something on fire. Uh, a fire that is consuming, something that, that flames up. And because of the grammar, because it's in the passive voice, it's interesting that literally what he's saying is that this burning is something that happens to them because of their sin. It literally takes them over. He goes on to say that they burn in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. The due penalty of their error, we can see that today. The physical mutilation that occurs with them. You just talk to the people down in the emergency room that has to deal with the homosexuals, as I have. You see it with AIDS, and on and on it goes. So here again is a fitting analogy to false teachers. Don't lose the context here. Verse 10, those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. In verse 14 of chapter 2, having eyes full of adultery, that never cease from sin. In other words, their eyes are always looking at a woman in a, in a way that kind of sees through her and wonders what she would be like in some kind of an immoral encounter. Their eyes are full of adultery. They never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. And Jude 5 adds that they turn the grace of our God into licentiousness. 
which is a term for unbridled, gross immorality. This is what goes on in the hearts of false teachers. So God utterly destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah with fire and brimstone, resulting only in the rescue of Lot and his daughters. We read in Genesis 19:24, Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. We know, by the way, that that was a very beautiful and fertile area at one time. So Peter says in verse 6, he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. If I can digress for just a moment. Living in such a vile place as Lot did, living in Sodom, is really a testimony to what can happen to believers when we subject ourselves to wickedness around us. You see, the gross immorality and spiritual blindness of those around us can eventually cause us, if we're not careful, to begin to think and to act wickedly, as Lot did by offering his daughters. And even later on, if you will recall the story, the daughters got Lot drunk and then had an incestuous relationship with him in order to somehow in their mind cause the family to continue on. And one daughter had a son named Moab and another named Ammon. They became the fathers of the Moabites and the Ammonites who were the vile, wretched enemies of Israel for years to come. You see, Lot had been blinded by by materialism and he decided that that was more important than anything else. So he chose to live in Sodom because Sodom and Gomorrah were both very wealthy cities in a very fertile valley. But friends, what happened to Lot should serve as a solemn warning to all of us, especially you fathers, and I want you to hear this. If you choose to live in a wicked environment and constantly allow your families to be exposed to the most wretched forms of sexual perversion, you will eventually become desensitized to sin. Notice in verse 7, in the middle of verse 7 and 8 here in 2 Peter 2, it says that Lot was oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men. Uh, Unprincipled, by the way, means in the original language, someone that has no regard for God's standard. And, of course, homosexuality is a base inversion of God's created order. It denies both the physical and the moral orders that God has set into life. But here we read that Lot was oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men. For by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, I'll catch this, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day with their lawless deeds. Now, If you're feeling your soul tortured day after day because of the lawless deeds of unprincipled people around you, you need to move. You need to do something. Because if you don't, eventually, you're going to begin to make stupid decisions that do not please God, even as Lot did. Child of God, I warn you, flee from wicked influences. Guard your children, especially from homosexuals. Believe me, homosexuals are not born. They are recruited. Guard yourself. Guard your family. Or eventually your righteous soul 
will get to a place where it's no longer tormented. At least Lot was still tormented. I know a lot of Christians who aren't tormented anymore. They're, they're not outraged at anything. No, nothing seems to bind their conscience. There, there, there's no place where they will say, I will not stand for this to be in my house. I will not stand for my children to do A, B, or C, and so on. How easy it is for the cancer of sin to slowly eat away at our morality until finally it seduces us into all manner of foolishness. So here we have three examples revealing the paradigm, the model, the pattern of God's judgment. Wicked sinners are exposed to the glory of God and righteousness. They're warned repeatedly because God is merciful and long-suffering. They refuse to repent. They turn into people that are ungodly with no principles, immoral, and then God destroys them. And finally, as we close this morning, we see the proficiency of divine judgment. We've seen the pronouncement and the paradigm, now the proficiency. And by this, I'm simply referring to the supernatural, consummate perfection of God's ability to perfectly administer both his blessings as well as his curses. You see, we've seen in the precedents here with these three historical examples of divine judgment that God can perfectly safeguard his own while at the same time simultaneously incarcerate and judge the ungodly. And Peter closes this example of divine judgment here in verse 7. He says, if if, res- if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard, that righteous man while living among them felt his righteous soul tormented day after day with their lawless deeds. If that, then, verse 9, the Lord knows how. Now, there, here's his proficiency. He absolutely knows how. He knows how to hold the whole world, the whole universe in order then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. And here he's referring especially to false teachers, which is the theme of this whole passage. And he goes on to describe them in verse 10, and especially those who indulge in the flesh and its corrupt desires and despise authority. Curiates in Greek, it means lordship. It's referring to those who refuse to submit to the lordship of Christ. Those who refuse to obey him. Yet they claim to be speaking for him. So friends, I challenge you this morning. First of all, for those of you who don't know Christ. There is a day of reckoning that's coming. And I plead with you as a minister of the gospel. Won't you repent before it's too late? He is keeping an account. Because of your sinfulness, he has been offended. But there is grace, there is forgiveness in Christ and him alone. And God will forgive you if you cry out for mercy and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And Christian, to you I say, guard yourself from false teachers. Guard yourself from the wickedness of this world. I know we have to be in the world, but we don't want to be of the world. So we need to rejoice in the promise of divine judgment upon the wicked, but also know that someday we will also stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And we will rejoice 
in all that he has done for us. And even now we can rejoice in the sovereign protection that envelops every child of God, every one of us who loves the Lord, who have been saved by his grace. How wonderful it is to know that the glories of heaven await those who trust in him. Indeed, joy comes in the morning. Amen. Joy comes in the morning. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that Your Word will find a place in each of our hearts and we know that it will not return unto You without doing what You have sovereignly ordained it to do. Lord, I plead with You that it will soften rather than harden all of those who have heard it today. Thank You for meeting with us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit olivetreeresources.org.